RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. And two or three helicopters we had based there. And the indicators were that uh, it was likely to go to war, which wasn't terribly good news for our little helicopters. Um, So the conversation went something along the lines of, please, can you move them? And they said, well, why? And we said, because, you know, we think there's going to be a war. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC. And in each episode, I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Bruce Carman and we're going to discuss the insurance of war. Bruce started his career in insurance working briefly at the Institute for London Underwriters with Spear Drake before moving to Atrium Underwriting at Lloyd's in 1988, where he remained for 27 years. In his time at Atrium, he underwrote several accounts, including marine, political violence and terrorism and energy, before focusing his attention on aviation war risks in the early 1990s. After a three-year spell at Cathedral, he founded Hive Underwriters Limited in 2017. Now, alongside his day job, Bruce has served as a committee and council member of the Insurance Institute of London, as deputy chairman of the Lloyd's Market Association Aviation Hull War Forum, as international director of the Aviation Insurance Association, as board member of the International Union of Aerospace Insurers, and for the past three years, he has been advising NATO as the insurance expert for civil aviation. Bruce is also a free man and livery man of the Worshipful Company of Insurers, and most importantly of all, he was chairman of the Queen's Club Squash Committee, and he's a keen triathlete. Hive Underwriters Limited was formed in 2017 using Bruce's extensive knowledge of war insurance, which is what we're going to discuss today. And just as a point of clarification, my conversation with Bruce took place before the conflict in Sudan. So, Bruce, welcome to the podcast. Peter, thank you very much for that extensive repertoire. And uh, <laughs> great to be here. Thank you. Um, your CV, uh, quite apart from anything else, shows that you are fully embedded in the insurance world. But is that something that you were born into or was insurance thrust upon you? Um, I wasn't actually born into it. Uh, my father was an electrical engineer for a telecoms company um, and my mother was a florist. So no, insurance wasn't my calling. I actually wanted to be a marine biologist. Um, wow. Reset my chemistry A-level and in the process thought, oh, waiting for university, I better get a job. Came up to the city and insurance was what it was. So never looked back. Right. I, I, yeah, this is about war insurance. And I, I guess we'd better start with the, the obvious question, most famously posed by Edwin Starr in 1970. Bruce, war, what is it good for? I think the short answer is absolutely nothing, isn't it? Is that the correct answer? It is. It ain't nothing but a heartbreaker. <laughs> Friend exactly. only to the undertaker. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I think H.G. Wells famously said, if we don't end war, war will end us. But he was a pessimist, wasn't he, H.G. Wells? He certainly was. He certainly was. And I also understand that you are currently writing a chapter of a book all about the history of war insurance. So uh, talk us briefly through the, the, the genesis, the, 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 the origins of war insurance, because um, as I understand it, war losses used to be picked up by the aviational risks insurers. But uh, at some point, they started to uh, exclude war risks, um, which prompted 
a need for aviation war insurance. And is that right? And, and when did that happen? So, yes, thank you for reminding me of my unfinished business. Um, <laughs> it was towards the late 1960s that war risks um, became excluded because of various events around the world and the number of hijackings and, um, and war events that were deemed. So aviation insurance didn't like the losses they were incurring and therefore excluded those from their policies. So I've been doing a little bit of reading um, wow. about, about hijackings because it's fascinating. So do, do you know when the first hijacking took place? Bearing in mind that planes, well, when, 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 was, when were Wilbur and Orville right? So 1904, was it? Something like that? Kind of very early it, anyway. It, it was. Um, and, and I think the first known hijacking, I believe, was in 1929. And the pilot was ordered to divert um, by a lieutenant under the command of the Mexican Revolutionary at the time. He was held captive some time and, and then released. But, you know, it wasn't the first fatal hijacking. Actually, the first fatal hijacking happened on 28th October 1939. Did that come up in your research, Peter? Is, is this the Ernest, Ernest Pletch, that one? Absolutely. Yes. It, what what a fantastic learn? story is that? Well, I, I got it from Wikipedia. So, so you, you, there we go. You, you tell the story because you will have a better source for it than I do. Well, as the story goes, Ernest Pletch um, shot his instructor, flight instructor, giving him a lesson, Carl Bivens, um, in the back of the head twice whilst flying over Missouri. And that was the, making it the first fatal hijacking. Pletch actually managed to land the plane successfully and then was arrested. It was an extraordinary event. And the fact that he managed to land the plane after killing his instructor, obviously a little bit morbid. But if you think about it, you know, to think that that was the first fatal hijacking, and that was 1939. So, you know, it's taken 35 years since man started flying, really, in order, you know, for a hijacking to be recorded or a fatal hijacking. And I think, you know, what's important to understand is that nowadays we define, and possibly back then, I don't know, hijacks are defined as, as um, the unlawful attempt of taking control of an aircraft whilst in flight. So it doesn't count when it's on the ground, but it, it's when the aircraft's in flight. That's the definition of a hijack. When it's high, presumably. There we go. Yep. Yeah. Um, but but then there was this, if one can call it a golden era, that's probably an inappropriate phrase. But anyway, a, a golden era for for hijacking, kind of between 1968 and 1972. So just after my birth, in fact. So 326 hijack attempts which is one every 5.6 days during that five-year period. There were actually some significant events around that time, and those that had a significant impact on the aviation industry were the likes of the killing of Malcolm X in 1965. You then saw the establishment of the Black Panther Party in 1966, and that resulted in a number of hijackings. Likewise, you had the Vietnam War of the sea occurring, and civil aircraft um, were attacked by pacifists at the time, ironically. Um, and, and, and then you also had the freedom fighters who wanted to fly to Cuba. There was this um, take yeah. me to Cuba, which was, I think, quite ironic because when they got to Cuba, the last thing they had was freedom because they were incarcerated. And finally, I would just state, um, you had the Six-Day War obviously known as the June War as well, the Arab-Israeli War. You know, that obviously in, in incorporated Egypt, um, Jordan, Syria, Israel, Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula. You know, you had a lot of warring factions there and a lot of aircraft were hijacked, bombed, um, destroyed. And clearly this isn't terribly good for insurers who are paying the money 
to the operators, the owners, the aircraft um, airlines themselves. So, you know, I think that's a kind of plotted history of the, what was called the golden age of hijacking in 68, 72. Do you know what it was that actually stopped the hijackings in 73? Ooh, I do not. No, I do not. So it was due to the invention or rather the use of scanners. Prior to that, believe it or not, there was no security. <laughs> Can you imagine, you know, like getting onto a bus, you know, you literally just march forward and on you go um, with your speedy boarding and, and no scanners, no security screening. Um, so, yes, that was the big change. But uh, the, the most famous hijackings of all um, obviously took place on uh, 11th of September 2001. Uh, on that day, uh, four planes were hijacked, uh, leading to attacks on both of the Twin Towers in New York uh, and also the Pentagon. So so talk to us about uh, that and the consequences of those attacks on, on the development of war insurance. Well, obviously, it was a hugely tragic event um, with the loss of 3,000-odd lives. And, um, you know, the images for those of us that were alive and or certainly working in the city at that time were you know, catastrophic and unbelievable. And, you know, the events that led uh, or or rather that occurred after that, clearly there was a, a sea change in the marketplace um, from an insurance perspective. Insurers were, um, a, as a start point, the aviators, and that's the all risks underwriters, were concerned for the passenger and or third party war liabilities that they were covering because they were ultimately liable for far bigger sums than the hull of the aircraft, which the war insurers were responsible for. The the whole war underwriters didn't issue notice. However, surcharges were applied systematically across the board and the world fleet had to pay more money because the, the premiums that were at the time being generated were in the region of $30 million. The loss from that event was only, I think, somewhere around $140 million. But six weeks, seven weeks prior, underwriters had experienced the Tamil Tiger attack on Bandra Naik Airport in Sri Lanka, which cost in excess of $350 million. So you can see that you know now you're looking at $500 million of loss in a year that was yielding $30 million of premium. Something had to change. So, so, so that's terrorism or hijacking anyway. Um, I have to confess, I hadn't really appreciated that, but I fell within kind of war insurance. But we obviously need to kind of discuss war itself. We've already touched upon Vietnam War and the Six-Day War. But obviously, as we speak, there's a, a major war in Europe, which as far as we can tell is going to last for many more months to come. But to what extent, to what extent is, is the Ukraine war an outlier um, in, in the world today? Because, as you'll be aware, Stephen Pinker, the the, the psychologist and, and author, he argues that the war is becoming rarer. Kind of since the Second World War, wars are on on the decline. That is that your experience as well as an insurer? Is that is that a, a belief that you share, or or do you express scepticism about that? Yes. Is it becoming? Are they becoming less prevalent? Um, and will they become less prevalent? And you know to. Stephen Pinker's point and other um, learned um, doctors out there writing on this subject, there is a thought that war will become less frequent. And why? And, you know, I think for various reasons, one that I came across actually in my recent travels, I met um, a, a very interesting lady, Elizabeth Braw, 
um, who works for the American Enterprise Institute. And Elizabeth, I met at, at NATO, and she writes incredibly convincingly about gray zone threats. And gray zone threats, much like a balloon transiting over uh, uh, North America, are political meddling, cyber threats and cyber attacks, economic coercion. And, you know, there are some incredible, um, incredibly documented events which are just prodding, you know, the, the um, individual, the nation. Yeah, and, and that, I think the recent balloon scenarios, it could get, uh, for want of a, a ridiculous pun, blown out of proportion. Um, but I think, you know, when you look at these um, events and you say, well, we're not declaring war, but we are just coercively attacking you in a very surreptitious manner. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be said for, you know, how people play that game. Um, and is it called passive aggressive? I don't know. So I think we're seeing more of that. And back to your comment regarding war risks, and you didn't realize that terrorism and other malicious acts were covered under a war policy. I think we call it war rather lazily, um, really. I mean, you say, obviously, you know, six-day war and, you know, dating back to the, you know, Vietnam War and the like. Yes, those were wars. But I think what we have to relate to is that the oil risks didn't like the malicious aspects of losses that they were incurring, hijack and threats, etc. And so they excluded those pieces from their policies. In excluding, there was a gap in cover. There was a lack of cover for the operators, the airlines and all their um, banks and financiers behind. And so that needed covering. And so actually the, the, the right terminology for the policy is actually called war and allied perils. And I've, I've gone on record many times actually talking about how the allied perils can be the ones that uh, create the, or do the damage and ordinarily. Um, war actually, as you say, is, is nowadays quite rare. And war insurance, you're talking about aviation um, in particular, is it limited to aircraft though, or does it go beyond that? No, it, 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 we are covering the spares, the equipment, the engines, which can be, you know, 30 plus million dollars themselves when attached or detached from the aircraft. And then there's costs and disbursements, expenses that airlines and operators can incur in their normal daily operations. And should, you know, should there be an event, stay at an airport, and let's say there is a bomb on an aircraft and it explodes, um, no loss of life, we have one hopes. And you've then got runway foaming, you've then got, you know, potentially emergency procedure centers, should there be families involved? And so, yes, there are extended coverage, I, I, I would suggest, um, for disbursements. And based on my research, that there are perhaps 40,000 planes in, in the world, uh, which I have to say was actually fewer than I was expecting. I was expecting a lot more than that because, because I think even that includes all the little ones as well as the big ones. But is war insurance relevant for all types of aircraft, kind of large and small, or, or is it just restricted to the large commercial ones? Uh, no, very much all aircraft, I would say, even down to um, drones and UAVs nowadays. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting from a war perspective. I actually, dare I say it, back in, in the late 80s, early 90s, I, I cut my teeth and, and learned my trade on general aviation, on, on building a portfolio of general aviation. And I think one of the more interesting um, risks, and certainly had some very interesting ones in Africa and the Middle East, and certainly post 9-11, uh, you know, there were the, obviously the likes of 
I think the Americans called them K-Town and B-Town, um, which was Kabul and Baghdad flights. And, uh, you know, flights into those kind of areas, if they were rotor-wing, for instance, you know, were not without risk, clearly. We had, famously, we had a, um, an operator um, coming from North America who won a contract for the UN in Baghdad and in 2003 was flying Hans Blix, the UN weapons inspector, Indeed. around Baghdad. And two or three helicopters we had based there, and we underwrote 100% of the warist policy. And the indicators we were informed were that uh, it was likely to go to war. Um, and of course, the UN weren't interested in waving the flag to start that war. So they didn't, they weren't going to be exiting the arena just because of the threat. Um, they would certainly say that, which wasn't terribly good news for our little helicopters, um, valued possibly around $25 million in total. So the conversation went something along the lines of, please, can you move them? And they said, well, why? And we said, because so <laughs> we think there's going to be a war. It's like, well, we've got a bomb the performance. We need to perform it. And we, I think we had to convince them that it was likely. Anyhow, as the story goes, they did fly out of our Syria and 24 hours later, the theater of war started and they certainly wouldn't have flown them out. And ironically, we were left with, I think, quarter of a million dollar bill for the spares they left behind in Baghdad. But that's when the war started. And as we famously now know, there was no weapon of mass destruction or smoking gun, as it were, that was found. But, um, you know, we were grateful to get our helicopters out. No, absolutely. And, and and do war policies tend to be annual policies or are they just the specific projects or, or how does that work? On, on the whole, they're annual. In the past, um, we used to see ad hoc people buying if they were flying into interesting areas you know, where they thought there was increased threats. But you know, on the whole now, um, especially if there is a, um, a Leonardo or financier behind, then, then there would be certainly insurance and a 12-month policy. But uh, I mean, surely there's a risk of a 12-month policy, which is that a, a geopolitical situation could deteriorate extremely quickly. And if you're, well, you've already mentioned the helicopters are, are, are costly, but if you were insuring a big Boeing or a big Airbus, that's, you know, 100 million plus, isn't it? They're, they're, they're not 400. cheap. Well, 400. Well, let's go, let's go 400 plus. You know, we've got assets up to there, nearly $500 million. And uh, so, you know, when you get VVIP aircraft that are laden with gold, um, they certainly, you know, they're in excess of $450 million nowadays. So, yes, you, you're right. Um, these, these, they're big assets. They, um, you know, lots of them in one place starts to give us concerns as well. And, you know, I'm not Mystic Meg, you know, for all of our intel um, and analytics and advisory feeds that we have, we can't see into the future 12 months. We can... Pretty much, I, I wouldn't say forecast the next month or two weeks, but you know we're, we're getting pretty good at that to see what the movements are. As a good example, Ukraine, we actually spotted that six months prior and actually exited our positions there because we identified it as a threat. But I think subsequently, when you look at the threat of war, when war or terrorism manifests itself as a surprise, then both the marine and the aviation market have notice to review clauses in there, ordinarily seven days, albeit if you were, as I said, someone like Hans Blix operating in Baghdad, we'd probably put a 24 or 48 hour notice period on a policy like that. So we have to have the option to say, look, when things start to turn, 
we have to review this. The policy that you're buying is for a, a peacetime, certainly in the area that you're operating, should it be a peaceful domicile that you're you're living in. And, you know, with that, we will rate you for the peacetime operation of your airline. And I think if a situation changes, the notice cancellation, as I said, both in the marine and in the aviation market, allows us that flexibility to say, when we underwrote this policy, there wasn't a war. Now there is a war. There is a material change. And that material change effectively should allow us the opportunity to have another conversation with you, the Assured, to say we're reviewing the terms and conditions to either exclude those geographical areas, change the terms and conditions, change the pricing, etc. And they have the option of you know accepting or not accepting that at that time. So it's not a case of just running away. It is a case of negotiating that change. And, okay. and certainly that's what we seek to do. Uh, and the the, the, the seven-day notice period, I mean, the, the, someone would say that yeah, if, if you're able to terminate a policy at 24 hours notice at, at an extreme event, then that doesn't that slightly render the, the policy kind of redundant in some ways if, if you can terminate the policy just when it's absolutely needed. But I think what you're saying is you'd always work with, with an insured in that situation. Absolutely. And and you're exactly right. So, you know, I think the thing is, you know, no one's in this for a racing certainty of a loss, but we are talking about, you know, looking at the movement, looking at the change, looking at what can occur and, and saying, let's have a conversation with you and how do you see this? And, and if you're an operator, you would like to think, they were thinking about the safety and security of their crew and the passengers in that plane as well without taking unnecessary risks. So I think it's about communicating risk. And we've all got a different risk appetite. We've all got a different view on what's risky and what's not risky. And I think just trying to try and get people on the same page as to what risk looks like and how we perceive it is really part of the challenge. Uh, and how do you as an insurer go about assessing that risk? Because you've already talked about the fact that you have kind of access to the data and there are people that you speak to about these things and how you assess a geopolitical situation at any one time. So, so is there a system by which you do that? Is that where are your data sources that you rely upon? Well, and so that's a very good question, Peter, because um, back in making myself sound old now, but back in the late eighties, <laughs> you didn't have the internet. We didn't have you know that ready source of info and intel and you know couldn't just dial up wiki like you you know what's happening in the news today by sky and so i was tasked with actually corresponding and phoning up the foreign office what was slightly interesting was the foreign office at the time either covertly or overtly i'm not sure didn't really give me an awful lot of a steer and that you know if there was anything slightly awry they would say don't don't go there you know, that doesn't really help me when an operator wants to fly some equipment somewhere, which is deemed slightly dangerous. So we then subscribed to a service Reuters at the time would um, give us a, a, a news feed, which we could dial into. And one of our early computers, almost steam driven, um, we had this access to Reuters system, which we could word search on. But again, that was almost retrospective looking rearview mirror of what had happened and been reported as opposed to forecasting what was going to happen. And then the, the real epiphany happened when in 2001, literally, I'm going to say a few weeks after 9-11 occurred, Christian and I were visited by an individual called Simon Soule, who was working at the time in Whitehall and ex-forces or rather forces at the time looking to set up something in the private sector. And he said, would you be interested in an intelligence service to give you intel on 
threat assessments of, of you know, countries around the world and our eyes lit up and said, <laughs> absolutely. We'll have that. And with that, so we, well, with that, exclusive analysis was born and we were the first investors and or um, people in the marketplace, certainly the Lloyd's marketplace, to use Simon's service as exclusive analysis. Exclusive analysis, Simon um, sold some years later and to IHS, who are now IHS market. And they are almost a standard Intel service for most um, Lloyd's syndicates and or companies operating out there, either in the energy market, the political violence and terror market, the war markets, um, and the marine market. And you know what they're doing is giving country risk assessment. And they are now IHS market are merely one of a suite of around a dozen Intel services that we subscribe to, that we utilize when rating and, and uh, creating policies. And uh, this is probably a good, a good moment to ask you why you set up Hive. Uh, interesting question. I, I, I think um, when I used to have third-party support and, and you know, all those years ago when, when I started underwriting the aviation war, we had a quota share treaty where other insurers in the market would support us because we were the perceived leaders and, and experts and they would follow the fortunes and, and support us with, with their capital. And I took that for granted in some ways. And it was only um, latterly that I realized, you know, there was something a little bit more here that we were doing something different with the knowledge-led analytics. We were doing something different with the way we were assessing risk and identifying threats. And then we married the threat assessments and the Intel services together with the data of where planes were and using at the time it was using schedules and timetables to say you know this plane worth this much is on the ground oh and there's a whole load of others with it at which point we've got a aggregation exposure here of x and i think back to why did i set up hive i saw the opportunity of matching data i.e. the data of where planes are together with the threat assessment, the intel. And I thought, well, this hasn't really been done or it hasn't been done terribly well. And, you know, we have developed in-house here at Hive now a system much like flight radar where we can see aircraft real time on the map moving and know the value of that asset and Hive's share of it. Then when they land on the ground, this is the bit that flight radar can't do. When they're on the ground, we can see the aircraft and their values on the ground. And that's the bit that I don't think others can do that in the marketplace. As, as I mentioned in the introduction, you, you are an advisor to, to NATO, the, the, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the, the, the military alliance of 31 member states now, now that Finland has joined, including the US and the UK and, and lots of European countries. What does an advisor to NATO involve? Why are they interested in insurance? And, and what is it that you tell them? Um, so I, I think I can tell you some, but not all. It's like oh, uh, I, was, I was hoping you were just going, going to disclose deep secrets here, Bruce. Well, I, I think I'd have to shred your head or those of your listeners <laughs> afterwards if I did so. But um, no, <laughs> listen, I'm not party to too many of the trade secrets. I mean, I was um, asked to go with some others in the market to NATO HQ um, a couple of months ago, which was uh, fascinating, if I'm honest. And actually, the reason I was there and NATO have asked me to help advise them is because they're interested in how the commercial market for insurance of war risks operates, not just for planes, but also for vessels on the high seas as well. And why? Because 
as an amalgamation of 31 member states, as you, you, you mentioned, they do not own the assets. NATO, as a body, do not own the assets themselves. So they have to procure them and um, come near them effectively from the member nations. And so when you are then utilizing commercial airliners in potentially a theater of war, uh, going back to our previous comment, you know, insurers are not really putting their hands up ten a penny to insure planes and vessels in a war zone. And so that creates an issue. Suddenly you've got this mismatch. You've got a commercial aircraft, say, and it's going into a theater or potential theater of war. So the question was, how do NATO then insure that asset? And I think after a three-day seminar, we managed to square that circle. And between us, um, together with the mariners present, we managed to get to a state where I think, you know, NATO can effectively create a mutual themselves amongst the member states and levy between them the cost of that insurance. Now, it's not in my nature to start saying, you know, governments and nations should start self-insuring and mutualizing because obviously we're in the business of selling commercial insurance. But in this instance, it was, I think, the only sane way of dealing with the, the prospect at the time and uh, before I ask my concluding question, Bruce, um, I understand that you're a freeman of the City of London. And I, am, am I right in thinking that that gives you a right to to, uh, to drive sheep over London Bridge? That's the classic thing, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. You're absolutely right. Amongst other things, you know, I can be hung by a silk cord, I think. Oh, that's And carry a sword unsheathed around the city, should I wish. But I, I'm sure I'd get arrested by some <laughs> city policemen, should I wish to do so. No, it's, um, you know, clearly the the, um, the Westford companies do a lot of charitable work, and that is the aim. And it's obviously steeped in 800 plus years of, of tradition as well, and one of which is um, the um, ability to drive one's sheep across um, the bridge. And why so? Because because when you were uh, a freeman of the city back in days of yonder, you could actually command a higher price for your sheep in the city um, because they were bona fide sheep, though we say, um, <laughs> if, being sold, if being sold from from Smithfield. So I think you know that's the the, the kind of genesis of it, if you will, and and obviously the tradition still is around today. And a couple of years ago, I did actually drive my sheep over. In fact, it was Southwark Bridge, not London Bridge. Oh. I don't know where there was traffic regulations or something in place at the time. But um, it was a bit of fun. And uh, so, yes, I borrowed some sheep. <laughs> so you have actually done it. You have driven sheep over the bridge into the... Wow, that's fantastic. I have the, I have the certificate somewhere. <laughs> and finally, Bruce, um, you've had a long and incredibly distinguished uh, career in insurance. What's the most important lesson uh, you've learned, would you say, that you'd pass on to someone who's starting their career? I would say... Um, whether it's lazy or, or clever, I'm never sure, but no question is too dumb. And, you know, I might not know the answer to the question, but I, I certainly have asked a lot of dumb questions or, or what appear to be stupid questions in my time. But if you don't understand something, always ask the question, I think is the answer. And never stop learning um, is, is, is another. Um, you know, I'm challenged every day. Um, I, I, I welcome it and I, I really enjoy the learning process and I'm learning things about insurance or, or running hive or, you know, things about the city every day. And, and that I think is great. So have a questioning mind is what I would say. Thank you, Bruce. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. RPC Radio. Radio. 
Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.